Welcome to this episode of CTU Speaks Housing Epidemic. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers. I'm your co-host, Jim Staros, and I'm here with... Andrea Parker. There she is, looking nice on the, the Zoom call, as always. You think so? Yeah. I feel, I feel tragic. Tragic? Why do you feel tragic? I have no makeup on. I feel so bare. Oh, okay. I thought you were all like fixing your hair up because when we first got on, you're poofing your hair and I'm like, okay. I, I was trying to. I got, you know, even though we're not live, just, you know. I got you. Well, on this episode, we're going to be talking about housing and the problems of housing and homelessness and gentrification all around the city. So what do you think about that, Ms. Parker? I just think it's horrible. I just think that housing should not be something that our students or our family should be worried about. I think that... Uh, our city and community should be really invested in making sure that people have safe places to live. Um, our children cannot focus properly in school when they are living in shelters, when they live on the street, living in cars, living from family to family or friend to friend. And instead of, you know, um, being empathetic toward those needs, a lot of times we just like judge like, OK, well, parents need to, you know, playing better with your money or you need to have more fiscal responsibility or you shouldn't have been a single parent. And this is all these judgments, um, but we're not trying to fix the problem. And it's just too many of our students that are homeless and it affects their, their, their hygiene. It affects their self-esteem. Um, parents are less apt to be involved because they don't want to come to school with the thought of being judged. Um, so we just have to aggressively get involved and be empathetic toward these needs because this affects education and affects the success of our students. So we have to be a support for them. And it's just so hard to get housing today, affordable housing. That's ridiculous. We all, and there's a lot of empty buildings in Chicago. There are. The situation with the kids having to worry about this at, at young ages, you know, kids sometimes five, six, seven years old, you know, we think they don't understand what's going on around them, but they do. They can feel that tension at home. They feel that stress. You know, I, I remember talking to a couple of my students and we were talking about, uh, I was talking to one kid about homelessness and some of the students that were homeless around the city. And he was talking about how horrible it is and all that. And then I, I found out he's splitting his time living between two aunts' houses. That's technically homeless. He, he didn't even realize he was. And because it's so normal for a lot of our students, it's just regular. Like, oh, it's it's March. I stay with I stay with this auntie. You know, it's April. I stay with this, my grandma. You know, that that's just regular. And that that's not right. That's not right at all. No, it's not right. And it is so hard to get affordable housing. It's hard to get Section A vouchers. Some landlords um, don't accept the vouchers. They may code it by some other word or language. They don't accept them. It may take families 10, 20 years to get a voucher. They want so much documentation to get the voucher. They don't want to pay the rent that the, um, that the landlord requests uh, for the voucher. So it constantly leaves families in limbo and no place to move uh, and no place to live because it's just no is no help. It just takes too long of the process. Affordable. Uh, you you have mixed income communities. Um, There's so few apartments or housing that is dedicated to low income families. So it's just really hard. And those who got a prison who are trying to start their life around and their parents as well, they can't get housing because of the felony that's attached to their name for life. So it's just uh, it's this cycle. It's like a catch 22. I want to do better, but you won't allow me to do better. 
Um, so housing, it should it just should be a right for people. It should have you know quality housing that is free of mold and and free of you know infestation of bugs and people just don't have that. It affects people's psyche, and so I, I'm just I'm just upset. And there's a lot of like you um we talked before the podcast, but like gentrification in many areas that forced people who had nice housing, it forced them out of their nice place. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't know when it became synonymous to have low income, meaning criminal or meaning negative or meaning you dirty or something like that. It just means you don't make enough money to live in that other place. That's all that means. It doesn't mean anything about your character, about who you are as a person, about your family, it don't mean anything. And, and it's, you know, and the problem is they're pitting people in our communities against each other. Oh, we don't want those people over here. You know what they'll do when they get here, you know, and it's, you know, the communities that are being pitted against each other, they're both being screwed over by the 1%, by the people running the city. You know, it's me fighting for my scrap, but I'm going to steal your scrap from you because you don't deserve that scrap. I'm going to get two scraps. And they, they, we don't realize there's a whole damn buffet on the table. Come on, let's go get it. That's true. And this housing is just too high anyway. It's just too high. It just doesn't make sense where a, a, a one bedroom costs $2,000 in some places. It's just too high. And that could be in, in places like where there's a lot of gentrification in Humble Park, in Woodlawn, um, in Pilsen, where you where there was affordable housing. Maybe you can get a nice two bedroom for $1,000. Now it's 2000 3000 I had a teacher who lived in Humble Park and had to move over to where I am in Chatham, where it's more affordable and nice houses um, because they raised the rent like maybe like $1,500 and like, okay, when you want to pay, you got to go. And just no empathy. There's no, there's no, um, no accountability uh, for landlords or anything in terms of what they charge, how often they, you know, how often they raise the rent. There's no accountability and no regulations. And so when you live in a market like that where there's no regulation, then, it could just run them up and that affects our babies. It does. And it's in the best interest of everybody in the city, whether you live in an affordable area or not, to be sure everybody's housed well. I mean, it, it's benefit for everybody to make sure everybody's content and happy with where they are. Some of the unrest we see in these cities around the country are because of systemic problems like this that have been going on for year, for decades. Fixing these problems will help alleviate a lot of those issues and those pressures on those communities. You know, if you don't have a nice place to live, you don't have a job, you don't have money coming in, there's going to be problems. And and riots are the, the last resort of people who are oppressed. People don't wake up and be like, you know what, hey, why, don't we, why don't we riot today? Let's do that. You know, this is pressure for years and, and it gets to people and... When people feel the only opportunity they've got left is to take to the streets, we've had a problem that we've got to fix. And it's a problem for everybody, no matter what neighborhood you live in. Right. It's like a powder keg about to explode. There you go. Powder keg. That's what it is. That's what we should have named the episode, the housing powder keg. That would have been a better name. Housing sure. Powder keg. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we got a, a wonderful guest today, right, Jim, that we're going to interview on housing. We do. We have Mwaze Bwani. He's a educator from Humble Park area. Actually, he teaches in uh, at Clemente High School. And we're going to hear from him about housing and the, the problems around the city, the issue with rent control, as you had mentioned. Great. So let's get to it. So 
So we're here now with Moise Buani. He's a social science teacher and teaches lots of other stuff up at Clemente High School. How are you doing there today? I'm doing well, Jim. I am like almost everybody right now, um, you know, getting ready for the school year. And that comes with a litany of emotions, but I'm in a good place. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Moise, for being on the CTU Speaks podcast. We are glad to have you as we're talking about housing and how that impacts our students. So I know that Jim gave a brief introduction of you, but can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you um, got into the role of housing with our students? Yeah, uh, I'm an educator at Roberto Clemente Community Academy. Um, I usually pivot between English and history. This year, I'll be teaching English for and senior seminar. This is my fourth year as an educator. I also serve as Clemente's delegate. Um, and in terms of like the road leading me to this point of being in the housing committee and doing a lot of work around housing and rent, um, you know, I came here, I came to this country when I was three. Uh, the first few places we settled in were affordable housing units, right? So I understood at a, at a like a later point in life, like where we were contextually when we first got here. I also, you know, had those deep experiences of watching my mother and my father, you know, have their hardest arguments discussing a budget, right? And saying repeatedly from the kitchen table at home, um, you know, how are we going to pay rent, right? Saying it in Urdu and saying it uh, in that language also has this deeper connection to like all of us, right? Struggling, right? So like when I hear the rent conversation, I hear it in my parents' language at the kitchen tables when we lived in, um, you know, West Rogers Park. Originally we were on Sheridan Foster. Uh, and then when we moved to West Rogers Park in a lot of um, apartment buildings, moving a lot, moving around a lot, like those were the common concerns, right? We also lived doubled up. I remember, um living in a, in a one bedroom, right. With both my siblings, my parents, and like three of us uh, using curtains and living rooms to like, kind of put our stuff behind those curtains to use them as like makeshift closets and all three of the siblings sleeping in the living room, right. While our parents had the bedroom. Um, so a lot of these circumstances that um, I, I see now in the lives of my students and the lives of our, our families and, in Chicago, in a nutshell, are things I felt, and I, I would be remiss to say that they didn't have an impact on me. And those are not things that I fear, and those are not things that haven't, um, you know, been fears and, and really difficult points for both my parents, who are immigrants, just trying to find a way to like make it and make it in a in a way that their young their kids had a chance. So it's always been there, and um, I'm just honored and proud to be able to do this work at a community level, and also just you know be working in a union that cares this deeply about the conditions of students and their families beyond the four walls of a classroom. Very humbly. And I'm sure that a lot of people can um, share those sentiments. I mean, and I know many parents and families today uh, can understand those situations. Where, uh, where are your family from? Yeah, we're Pakistani. So, um, okay. I got here when I was three. So I've been in this country for 29 years. So have you been back to Pakistan? Only when I was 10. It, it's been a, it's a very strange relationship and it's, it's stuff that, you know, as an educator, it really kind of informs you, like going off on a little bit of a tangent, um, as an educator, understanding like my, my own personal, like divide from home, right. I haven't been home for, and I still call Pakistan home. I'm 32. I haven't been home for 20 or sorry, I'm 33 now. Wow. Uh, saying that out loud, right? Catches me off guard. Um, I know. I know, right? Well, don't, well I, bet not say, I bet not say my age then. 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, I haven't been home for 23 years. Um, I just moved back actually to the Devon area where I grew up in my childhood. So it's been wonderful, but it does make you think a lot because um, those disruptions of like, you know, being an immigrant, right? Like one, the disruptions of connections to your father's homeland, your mother's homeland. Uh, my, my Urdu is pretty beaten up and broken. So I'm always like lacking confidence when I'm talking with people. Um, and those are things that you know are formulated or are formative in like community-based efforts and schooling. Like those are those experiences I live every day. So it's kind of a tie-in, yeah. So, uh, how many students in CPS right now, more or less, would you say are homeless or in transitional types of housing arrangements? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, one, it's super underreported. So I want to I want right. to kind of point that out to people, but we're looking at, like I use Clemente as an example, right? We have about uh, 16% of our population of students are students in temporary living situations. Um, around, around Chicago right now, it's kind of being reported in that 12 to 14% range uh, of our students that are enrolled are potentially living in temporary living situations or altogether homeless or in doubled up situations, which would, which, you know, we consider living in temporary situations, right? Knowing that at any given point, um, if you are, if you're living in an apartment that the landlord has a reason to evict you, if they realize like, Hey, this is an apartment meant for, you know, three people, four people, and you have eight, 10 people living there. So it's a, it's a very high population, um, in, in, in that context. But like one thing that is definitely to be mindful of is that we're also really underreporting these numbers, right? Because they're not easy one, it's not easy for students and families to open up about their living situations. Two, we also are kind of, um, in some ways, still transitioning towards understanding um, students' conditions outside of our classrooms as part of our practice, right? So we we sometimes miss out on opportunities of seeing students and saying, like, you know, I've been noticing you're wearing the same clothes or, like, you know, having deeper connections with families to the points where, you know, parents, ma, uh, guardians can be comfortable enough to say to you, like, hey, we're in a bit of a housing issue. We're in a bit of a housing crisis. Now, I know that like it's it's not just the issue of homelessness itself. It's there's so many people, um, even given your numbers, that still means there's tens of thousands of people in Chicago that are in these temporary living situations, um, tens of thousands of our students. But it's not just that. It, it, there's even more than that that are right on the edge, that they've got to worry about this. They could be evicted at any point that the mortgage and rent is getting to the point where they either can't afford it or maybe because of the pandemic, they've lost their job or they're down in income in the household. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about some of those other issues about the eviction moratoriums, rent control, and and some of those other uh, programs I know you've been working with. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, It's, it's a really precarious time right now, right? Um, We're, we're in the middle of a pandemic it, it kind of feels like there's really no end in sight with this pandemic, right? Because like one, like sitting here as a, um, as a citizen, right? People aren't really masking up. People aren't really practicing social distancing, right? And the numbers ebb and flow. We've been in phase four, moving back to phase three. But at a deeper level, what, what's been really concerning is the lack of federal, state, and, and city level response to this kind of avalanche building up in the background regarding evictions, right? Right now, um, kind of the state level response has been moratoriums. And a moratorium is where you basically, you know, stop something for a period of time. And what we've received is eviction moratoriums, right? Like, hey, 
as a landlord, you can't kick out residents, right? Which is in itself also been problematic because a lot of landlords are from just being out in the field going very loose with this, right? They are spreading misinformation. They are intentionally scaring tenants who don't know their absolute rights, but we are in a moratorium. Um, the last date was set to expire on August 22nd, uh, and that was extended for 30 days uh, per Delia Ramirez and the governor's office also acknowledged this around August 20th, so two days before it was potentially able to end. Um, and, and I really want to hammer that point home psychologically to think about this. I want you to, if you're listening to this podcast, really take a second and think about that, that you're sitting on the 20th and on the 22nd, you could be fair game for evictions, right? And the eviction process isn't as simple as uh, the landlord is going to change your locks, kick you out, throw your stuff out. There is, you do have rights, but for many of our citizens, they don't know about their rights. They don't know about their notice. They don't know about their day in court, what they get, right? So many of our families just sit, are sitting in this situation of like, we only have two days left, right? And at any given point, someone can come knocking and just say, hey, it's time for you to go. Like we have moratoriums and that's been like the state response, but what we don't have is any legitimate work except for efforts by, you know, older people like Matt Martin, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez and um, state, state reps like Delia Ramirez about like, hey, to really answer the needs of working families and working families make up a huge contingency of our, our full contingency of CPS, you know, working black and brown families of our CPS families. Um, but working families aren't getting that explicit relief of saying, hey, we're going to have a, we're going to, we're going to freeze the rent or we're going to do rent forgiveness. Because the thing is, you know, as we're in this pandemic, most of these rents are averaging around 900 plus and more and more. They're not disappearing from the ledger per, per state guidance, right? They aren't telling landlords, guess what? You're not going to collect on this rent. We're not developing packages of relief that give, you know, folks the mortgage relief they need, or if they own a building as a landlord, that relief. And in turn, we're not also offering that relief to residents. So in this moment, even though there no people aren't being kicked out of their homes, they're still going to be expected. And these are, again, working families, our families, black and brown families that are all living, you know, either somewhat comfortably. And by comfortably, I just mean like head above water or are, you know, going day to day, right? Living paycheck to paycheck. That they're going to be expected to answer whenever the moratorium ends and let's say life comes back to normal, whatever that normal definition is, that, hey, you still got $6,000 worth of rent you need to pay. And and there, and there is no plan for that, right? There is no relief for that. And I mean, you know, as, as people living in this city, as people who are politically active and active socially and organizationally, when you leave a vacuum like that, that also becomes a space for predatory efforts. That also becomes a space for misinformation. That also becomes a space where it doesn't hasten or limit, uh, you know, people being forced to be displaced, it could actually become a, a massive eradicator displacement, displacement, right? Like, you know, um, so those are the things that, you know, I've been tuned in on along with other activists, other community members, uh, educators, all the people around the city, because those are things that directly impact our young people, right? Like, um, you know, we know as educators about the impact of mobility, the concept of mobility, like a student moving from place to place, right? Whether that's educational or residential mobility. And we understand like if our kids are leaving the neighborhood are moving from place to place, how can they focus on academics? How can they focus on developing? How can they find 
psychological peace, right? Like how can they be who they who they fully are? So these things are are haunting, right? And we also are aware as um, educators, right, that this is also a tool for displacement. This is also a tool for moving people out of neighborhoods, also a tool for losing students, also a tool eventually for closing of schools, for, you know, closing of communities, because that's a massive crime at that level when you shut down a school. Um, And, you know, the statistics that uh, CTU had produced a housing analysis study very recently, and these statistics are, are always in play for us as educators because of our connection to our students and communities. But we've lost in the last decade over 200,000 African-American residents in the city. We've lost over 60,000 students. We've lost over 5,500 Black educators, right? Like, and now I'm thinking, again, in this moment uh, where, again, Black and brown communities are the ones very distressed in this moment of no rent relief, uh, of massive unemployment, of just instability up and down the scales of our city. What does that future look like for those students? What does that future look like for those families? What does that future look like for public education in the city? It's not a severe leap to say, in our practice, housing is inextricably connected to teaching. Right? So, Moise, uh, I like what you said. Just what how housing um, can affect the students in terms of like not having mortgage or rent freezes and some of the rent controls. And thankfully, there is a moratorium now on uh, evictions, at least for next month. But tell me something else on how a lack of housing or a lack of stable housing can affect our students. You know, there have been a ton of studies and I spent like a lot of my summer looking at these studies where people have been talking about like housing as a platform for improving education, right? I think that one was produced by um, the Urban Institute by and written by Mary Cunningham. And there's another really good report that I came across called The Impact of Affordable Housing on Families and Communities, Evidence-Based, right, by Enterprise. And these talked heavily about when we look at our students and how this impacts them, that housing stability or being uh, in temporary living situations drives them away from focusing on academics. It drives them away from socio-emotional needs and supports that help them develop as a person right? Help them develop um, skills to even navigate or advocate for themselves, skills that become crucial to who they are as students in, a, in, a, in our settings and beyond, like lifelong learners, right? Um, I think the impact of affordable housing study made this point that students who are living in um, displacement or living in housing instability tend to take these on for the for the latter part of their life. And that was like extrapolated in terms of saying that those same students then begin to prioritize, um, you know, a life that doesn't invest in academic learning, right? It just becomes like, I need, I need to get a job. I need to live in urgency. Um, but also on the other end, what it also does for students is it also prolongs like um, the, the impact of just being marginalized, right? The impact of staying in circumstances and being funneled into like very scary areas, right? Like we've talked right now in this recent school resource officer fight, uh, fight about the idea of the school to prison pipeline, right? Well, what this study had kind of really hammered home is that the school to prison pipeline isn't just connected in schools and through disciplinary measures, but also through neglect, right? And when students are being neglected, students end up in spaces that navigate them into prison, right? Into more criminalized uh, more criminalized institutions, right? And all of this stuff is deeply like connected where a lot of our families are struggling because 
you know, they've been deprived of resources that they deserve. They've been neglected systemically. And then we start asking these questions about like, you know, why is crime occurring? Why are people, you know, why are people acting uh, in a way that forces us to like continue to invest in over-policing as an answer rather than resources? So when I, when I look at these impacts, you know, I, I specifically, it's hard not to like, as an educator, you know, feel it, right? Because like your, our neglect or our inability to like articulate supports or fight for supports for families and and it's hard, right? It's hard in general, but like our inability to pick up on these things or advocate for them in some situations are ways that whether we realize it or not, that set up our students for for a very difficult, difficult, difficult adulthood, right? Right. No, definitely. I mean, the more opportunity you take away from an individual, the more likely you are that that the only thing left are, are not good choices. And it's, it's got to be terrifying to know that any day you could come home and that's not where you live. And, you know, and the stresses it puts on family members. I know you said you, you heard your, your parents talking about it around the kitchen table. And, you know, even if it's not being talked about, that stress is felt at home for sure. And then this is translated into school. And then sometimes we don't know why a kid might act out. Well, maybe they've got some real serious, you know, existential issues going on at home that become problematic. And we've, we've talked about this a lot in, on the show and other things around CTU is that these, the budgetary documents that are set up here in the city are moral documents. This shows what we value as a city. And when we choose not to invest in black and brown communities, it's very clear where our priorities are. We don't have to, we can say whatever we want out loud. It doesn't matter. But when it's very clear that we are willing to raise the drawbridges to protect property downtown, but we're not willing to protect certain communities, or we're going to tear down um, a facility over in Little Village and poison the air of a community that can't even leave their home, um, this shows where how we see things as a city. And, and this affects the kids. It's not, this is not just a grown-up problem. This is an everybody problem. And this comes into everything we do um, throughout our day, our schools, our communities, our neighborhoods. One of the things I wanted to ask is a lot of times people want to know, um, why, do, why does this matter to me personally? I'm not homeless. I don't know anybody homeless. None of my students are homeless. I don't have any friends who are homeless. Why does it particularly matter to me if I'm living somewhere and this is not something that is directly part of my experience? Yeah, and that's that's a really wonderful question. I think, you know, we've been grappling with this all summer as a housing committee is the idea of like, how do you raise consciousness amongst, um, you know, rank and file members in our union, rank and file teachers, right? Like, why should this matter to you? Um, this summer was really illuminating for me. I, I got to, you know, kind of do some junior level organizing with the, um, with the summer organizing committee program at CTU. And, you know, when we were looking at um, housing, we were able to call members and we specifically talked them through kind of what we're seeing as an entry point towards why you should care, um, which is STLS students, right? Like the most hyper-marginalized students in our schools. Those are students in temporary living situations, students that are legitimately coming to school and, and have these genuine feelings when they leave the school about where do I go tonight? Where am I going to stay tonight? Or are staying in conditions that are not... Uh, conducive to like work to like being able to have a productive connection to academics outside of school, right? Like 
I think about two signs a lot during the strike and after um, about like, you know, it's hard to do homework without a home. It's hard to shelter in place without shelter. Right. And I think like the argument I make with educators, people, I, people I love, people I care about um, and, and, you know, a- a- anybody who teaches because they matter to me because this job means the world to me is this idea of really empathy, right? Like thinking, thinking deeply and directly that you might not know people, but there are people in a, in an incredibly rich city in an incredibly well-resourced city that go to places where they don't have a home in the evening, right? That are living on our streets, that are living in our shelters. Poverty is in front of you in Chicago, right? And and I'm going to talk a little bit outside of like trying not to make like this appeal to people, but because I need to, right? Look, Look in the city, look at how we treat each other, look at how we look at each other. We have encampments around us. We have people at every corner in the richest parts of our city asking you for help, right? I sound like my father, but it, it is something deliberate that happens to you when you close your eyes, when you don't make eye contact with people who are suffering open and clear day and night in front of you, right? Um, and now I want you to think about it as an educator and magnify that, that you are responsible for teaching young people that are suffering silently or their families are suffering silently. And, and so many of these issues are, are intersectional, right? Whether we had students who still fighting this fight, but we had students whose parents were undocumented, students who were undocumented, and, and like the stress that they feel on a day-to-day basis in this heightened environment, right? And now we have students that we're looking at in this discussion through the lens of students who genuinely don't know what stability looks like post-school, right? And I think like the message when I, when I talk to educators and when I talk to y'all is to, is to really recognize that you can't control the violence occurring to your young people within your four walls, right? You can't just say the four walls and the work I do within the four walls of my classroom are, are enough to keep young people safe. You know, when I look at things this way, it becomes so incumbent on me to say that, you know what, the conditions of my young people, the conditions of their families... And an educator in Chicago, as someone in this union that really has fought back against power, it becomes incumbent on us to say, we got to fight for every single thing our students deserve, right? And and whether CPS wants to acknowledge it or not, sometimes even the practices they're taking in the school when they're trying to teach us about transformative justice that so many of us know about, they're telling you straightforward as an educator that there is some state-sanctioned violence happening to your kids and you don't want to punish them for that, right? And like, you know, I remember a colleague being like, man, I I really didn't think about like some of my students being hungry uh, in the morning, right? And I remember talking to this colleague and saying, yeah, I mean, like, that's a real thing, dude. Like, kids are coming into your classroom without, you know, access to food, with food instability, without access to housing stability, all these different things. And we're being taught as educators, rightfully, that those students don't deserve to just be lambasted or be isolated or be kind of put into this disciplinary matrix, right? So as an educator, I'm sitting here and saying, cool, that's the bare minimum I can do is not like get angry at those kids and force them to go through other struggles. But now as an educator, someone who is constantly seeking solutions and asking my students to seek solutions and see the world what do I do as that person to alleviate those harms occurring outside? Or how do I fight actively and show solidarity, show love to my students that if their conditions improve outside of my school, that they'll improve also within my school. So 
those are kind of the essential questions I, I keep asking our members. And kind of pivoting back to the survey, when we started talking to rank and file members, like they they realized and it hit home, right? Like to care about kids is in our nature and to care about students, especially in temporary living situations, is, is a practice we should all own inside the school. And now we need to develop it outside the school as well. Right. No, totally. I mean, one, one of the things that I think is really important is that we see our, our communities are, are organic. It's like an organism. If one part of it is injured, the whole system is injured. And it doesn't have to happen to me and my neighborhood directly for it to have this, this ripple effect throughout the community. And maybe the ripple that hits me isn't quite as strong as a ripple that hits another person, but it's still there. And everybody would be better off if these situations were solved. Um, and, and I think that's one of those things we don't really think about is these larger economic and social costs to having these problems. And, you know, even in a regular time, not that 2020 has been regular in any sense, um, but homelessness and housing instability is a very difficult problem to overcome. But now we've got that compounded with uh, a pandemic, racial violence, now hurricanes hitting. I mean, this is this is getting biblical, you know, and and it's crazy that we it, you know, that our students have to handle some of these things. You know, it, it is important and incumbent upon us as educators to understand that it, it may not be our fault, but it is our problem. And we have to understand that that is one of the conditions that we teach under, whether we like it or not. And that's and it's not going to go away just because we wish it would. When you are missing a need, which, you know, shelter, you know, just the basic need of survival is a, is, is a need. It's like the, your primary need. And if those needs are not met. Um, it can be destructive on a society. And so that's I feel how we are able to see the growth of a society or the stability of a society or how we treat those who are in need, uh, especially those young people who we're trying to serve. So what can we do moving forward? And what I mean by we, I mean educators, I mean the general public, I mean Chicago public schools, I mean city council. Uh, What can be done to combat homelessness with our students and with their families? I think at an initial level, so one thing we've been working on and one major victory that happened in our contract, but also a program that's existed before our recent contract is uh, at your school, usually your clerk or your counselor is the STLS liaison at your school. So they work with students in temporary living situations. We also were able to get this major victory in our contract where schools with a higher population of uh, students in temporary living situations, like Clemente, the school I teach at, get a full-time centrally funded role called the STLS advocate role. So for educators at a school level, please connect with these people, know these people, connect with them, constantly offer them support. Start embedding in your curriculum ways you can recognize students' needs beyond like what students tell you to raise their hand for, right? Specifically, what are students going through? And spotting, there's a bunch of training on this too, spotting students that are you know, in some sort of uh, temporary living situation or families in need, right? And families you can connect with um, on a day-to-day basis when you call to check in and, and make, make your check-in something that is not specifically tied to student academic performance, but also talk to your parents, right? Be like, how are you doing? How are things? It is a pandemic, right? Compassion and empathy is so, so crucial. And many of our teachers already do this. 
And let's keep doing it. Let's encourage each other to keep doing that. Let's work like we do, where we really genuinely care and consider our students and our families. So, you know, really rally around these people at your school that are doing this work, you know, become more, become more invested in pedagogy that allows you to detect what students aren't saying to you, right? Whether even if that is the student is not in a temporary living situation, but to listen to our kids and the struggles they're going through, especially in a remote setting. Um, I think my, my other piece of advice would be like work within your school, work with your teachers, work with your um, admin if you can, work with community partners and think about solutions you can have that can blossom into something special. I've heard of schools that have you know, been working on urban gardens and giving produce away. I've been thinking a lot about schools that have been creating food pantries, creating these spaces where directly that creates a connection in the community to say that, you know what, there's some real social issues that are tied to this. Um, at, a, at a secondary level, thinking specifically about housing, you know, try to engage with your alderman, engage with your alderman, engage with your state rep, your state senator, and start talking to them about these issues, about refunding social services and creating, uh, you know, creating direct demands around a rent for, like rent forgiveness and relief and support that, you know, we collectively are seeing this and how this is impacting our citizenry, our students, our families, all of that. So engage on that end. Um, I would also strongly suggest that, you know, start getting involved in the community if you have the opportunity, because there are wonderful things going around all of our communities. People are donating to mutual aid programs. Schools are running mutual aid programs. Our, um, you know, in the last two months where there's been an uptick in rent requests, 30% of the money we've given out has gone for rent support. Specifically, we haven't been able to pay full rent, but we've been able to give for rent needs, right? And there are people who are in need. And if you can give them that support, please do. Like this is, a um, when we talk about mutual aid and we talk about these social efforts, these are direct responses to the failures of our government, right? And we should be hitting them from this lens of saying, one, we're not gonna let each other down and we're not gonna allow hardship for one of us. Like Jim, you had mentioned an injury to one is injury to all, but hardship for one of us to be, you know, left unseen, right? And and do that, you know, through these mutual aid efforts, through these community-based efforts, but also engage politicians, really push them and demand that they do these things. Because it's not, it's not impossible. These are not impossible things. People have fought for lifting the ban on, on rent control. People are still fighting for those. People have fought for communities to get the services they need. They fought to defend neighborhoods from gentrification. They fought for affordable housing, right? And, and these are fights we have to engage in. I think... Um, you know, y'all, y'all had made this wonderful point about like, you know, it's not our fault, but it's it's our issue, right? Um, and and as educators, we we are consistently repairing worlds for students and families, right? We are not immune to the struggles of our of our students and our families, and this is that type of moment again where we have to rise up and really fight as hard as possible for our kids because who else is going to fight for them if it's not us? Um, it's an emotional thing, but I, but I do strongly want to advocate and, and ask all of us to like really, you know, wherever we are, one, love each other for that. Even if you don't feel like you're doing enough or you're like scared of like what it looks like to really put your heart and soul into things that aren't just the classroom. But like to, you know, love where you are to ask yourself, what can you do? What more can you give? And can you make calls? Can you talk to your neighbors? Can you check in with students? Can you be more um you know, hyper-attentive, right, to what people are not saying, but they're kind of either demonstrating it to you indirectly or directly, right? Um, and those are areas we have to get, 
better as educators. We have to rally around people in our communities and now in our schools who are doing the STLS work. We have to, you know, be on politicians and let them know, like, this is not right, that working people deserve relief, love, and care, right? Um, they deserve a right to recovery, which is the United Working Family slogan and effort. Um, and then also, you know, start asking yourself, right? Like everything around you as an educator, um, as a teacher, as someone in schools, as a clerk, as a tech coordinator, students, families, they're abundant and they're around you and they're always in need and they're always in need of people championing them, supporting them, amplifying them, centering them, putting them in positions to really get the love that they deserve and how do we get involved in that work and how do we continue it and keep it going. Well, thank you so much, Moise. Um, Moise is part of the Chicago Teachers Union Housing Committee. Um, if somebody wants to be a part of the housing committee, Moise, um, what can they do? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a, if you're a CTU member, we have a Facebook group you can join uh, or you can email Christine Dussault, um, uh, whose email is on our website in the housing committee chair. Email her and let her know you'd like to join the committee and then you know, please get with us, get involved. Um, we're doing a lot of work around, um, you know, identifying uh, what housing can look like for our students, what a housing curriculum could look like that can grow consciousness amongst uh, our rank and file and also consciousness amongst our students and families. And we're also going to be continuing to do a lot of work around, um, you know, being kind of very mindful and very much aware and organizing around uh, housing and affordable housing and all elements of housing that impact our communities and our city. Thanks so much, man. This was great information. And I really appreciate you coming on the show to give us your wisdom and insight into a very serious problem of homelessness and housing instability around the city. Thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate you all the time. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of CTU Speaks, where we only speak what matters. So if you want to be involved in CTU Speaks and you have a great idea, please do not hesitate to call us and leave a voicemail message at our number 312-467-8888. Easy to remember, but I'll say it again. 312-467-8888. Also, you can reach us by email at ctuspeaks at ctulocal1.org. Give us your comments, questions, concerns, ideas, even if you want to be a part of the communications committee because this is where the podcast come from. And so in our show notes below, you can look and see all the committees. And if you'd like to be involved in the communications committee where we just talk about or show issues affecting our, our union, our students, our families, and you have some ideas, Please, we, we need you. The more, the merrier. Jim, anything else you need to add? Well, don't forget to subscribe on any of your favorite podcast platforms. There's a lot of them out there, and we need some more subscribers. Miss Parker wants some subscribers. She said that's all she wants for Christmas is some more subscribers. Yes, I mean, let's, let's get like 10,000. 10,000. All right, let's start. Let, that's good. We'll start small, and we'll build from there. Yeah, 10, and build from there. 10,000 by Christmas. Yep. And if you sign up and we you're the 10,000th signer-upper, you will get a shout-out from Ms. Parker on the show. Yes, and maybe you'd be a guest. Maybe. That's what we You should have a 10,000th guest. That's what we'll do. And if you were on the communications committee, you'd be part of this decision-making right now. It'd be great. That's it. Right. That'd be great. So you all be wonderful. I know school's about to start up on September 8th. So prepare yourself. And again, I'm sure some good podcast ideas will come from that. So talk to you soon, and we are CTU Speaks. Bye.